What's up, everybody? Welcome to IGN GameScoop. I'm your host, Damon Hatfield. Joining me this week are Sam Claiborne. Hey, Damon. And Nick Lamone. Hey, how's it going? And we have a show for you this week. <laughs> Will it be great? I don't know. It's the second episode we're recording this week. We recorded a regular episode earlier in the week with myself and Sam and Justin and Colin Stevens. Due to some unfortunate technical issues, the audio in the episode is not good. There are lots of pops and clicks all throughout the episode. It would not be a, a pleasant experience for your ears to have to sit da- through Damon, that. I propose that we call this episode Game Scroop, because we don't screw up. <laughs> Game Scroop. That's pretty good. <clears throat> uh, so first what, time for me, though. What could we have done? First, first time for me. Scroop? <laughs> no, no, first time for this is the first time I'm experiencing. Oh, yeah, this, this is just game scoop yeah, for Nick, yeah. but for us yeah. too, it's yeah, game this is normal. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> so what were we to do? We could have just, you know, skipped this week, left Scoop Nation with nothing to listen to, considering this is the only video game podcast in existence. But no, it's Friday afternoon. Usually the episode has been up for hours now, but it's Friday afternoon now. We're just we're sitting down, we're gonna record a makeup episode for you. And I can hear all of Scoop Nation saying, but Damon, how did you have the time to write a whole new show and do all the research for all the news stories? Well, that's where I'm, I'm going to lean on you, Scoop Nation, and your emails are your emails are going to make up the bulk of this show. And actually, mm-hmm. I turned the clock back. I, or, <laughs> I have a GameScoop uh, inbox with over 3,000 emails that haven't been read on the show yet. And I sorted them by oldest. You read each one. That's the important thing. Yeah, I read each one and then I, I, I tuck them away if I want to use them at some point. Mm-hmm. So I, the oldest ones are from November of 2019 in my mm-hmm. inbox right now. And so I, that's, that's where we're reaching back. And we've, it, it's, I think it will be amusing for all involved. But first, God of War Ragnarok is, of course, out this week. We've been talking a lot about this. We talked about it last week and shared our, a bunch of non-spoilery opinions. Uh, on the last episode from this week, we got Colin Stevens' opinions on God of War. He loves it. Uh, he, he had oh, nothing but glowing praise for it. Now it is time to get Nick Lamone's uh, <laughs> opinion of God of War Ragnarok, which and is... By the way, oh. Nick, just beat the dang game. Mm. Yeah, I, f- I finished it very, very late last night, as you can probably tell by the eye bags under my eyes. <laughs> I stayed up very late like a uh, delinquent and then powered through the game. And uh, at just about a little over 30 hours, I rolled credits. And uh, I had a great time. Uh, that said, you know, I, I think it's basically impossible to um, address the overall quality of this game without comparing it to the 2018 release. And I think between the two, there's still something about the 2018 release that that hits me a little bit harder than Ragnarok did. Don't get me wrong, I adore God of War Ragnarok, but I think the highs of 2018 kind of outweigh the highs of Ragnarok. And I think a lot of that is due to the fact that there was quite a bit of a gap between God of War Ascension and then um, God of War 2018. And and God of War 2018 was such a breath of fresh air for the franchise. It was a fundamental shift from gameplay, perspective, and just overall tone and theme for God of War. So uh, a lot of like uh, I- iconic, uh, like iconic moments from 2018 that stand out to me are just Kratos fighting the dragon, and you 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 beat the dragon, and the, at the end of the battle, the mouth is like open and it falls with Kratos just standing in the center, and it just feels like epic in a way that I don't know that anything quite does in Ragnarok. Mm-hmm. But that said, opening of Ragnarok left me awestruck. 
Uh, there's the first encounter of the game, you know, 2018 had the encounter with Balder. Mm -hmm. The encounter that you have at the beginning of this game is just something truly special that I love. It's a thing that only video games can do. And the thing that they do is just so good. I I don't want to spoil it, but it is fantastic. Yeah. Very good video game. And uh, I was saying on the last episode that there's a point, uh, one, one criticism I had is that there's a point 10 or 12 hours into it, uh, Nick, we'll see if you agree, where the game sort of takes a hard left turn and it, I thought uh, like all the wind went out of the, the sails, the, all the momentum was dragged down and it was just kind of a long, meandering, boring section. Nick, do you know the point I'm talking about and do you agree, disagree? Yes. I, I 100% agree. It is the, like, once I got about to that point of the game, that was the first time I considered, it was like, oh, you know what, maybe I should take a break today. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, maybe I'm done playing for the day. And, and I think, you know, that I think that those that that kind of side of the game ends up turning into something a lot more interesting later on. But that that first zag definitely drags a little bit. Yeah. And I think I think the game does suffer a little bit from some pacing issues overall. It is much longer than God of War twenty eighteen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that said, there there's plenty of game in store here. Yeah. Um, and also, I'm happy to report I'm still playing it. I'm in I'm in like 21 or 22 hours now. And ever since that segment I just mentioned, I think it, the game just keeps getting better and better. There hasn't been any other stumbles like that. I'm really, really enjoying it. Uh, and I'm taking my time with it, not trying to rush to the end. Although from what Nick was saying, it sounds like I have about 10 hours left, maybe. something like that. I mean, Nick just gave me like really crazy news. I was like, here's where I am. And I kind of described it. He's like, oh. Oh yeah, you're not quite at the fifty percent mark yet, which I can't believe because I'm, you know, when I look at my game count, I, it's at, my hours count is probably seventeen or eighteen hours. Yeah, my numbers are a little bit skewed because I'm a completionist, so I tend to when I get a side quest or like a collect guides guy, guides guy. <laughs> very fair, very fair. So actually, maybe maybe you are further along than I anticipated. No, I think I'm just taking longer, and um, that's fine. I mean, for me, like the the I I really should talk about this game for my own mental health online anymore. Um, but for the people that uh, agreed with me ahead of not playing this game and the people that disagreed with me ahead of not playing this game, I hope you all get to play it and, uh, and then get back to us about your thoughts on it. Cause I'm really curious about what you think. Um, however, uh, Colin had brought up a point about how, you know, there's, there's parts of it that seemed a little bit stretched. And then we talked about on this, this, you know, lost episode, a little bit about how the ending is supposedly has a really good run, like a five or six hour, like amazing run. Beginning's pretty cool. So there's just some doldrums in the middle. And that's, you know, that just happens in games. And uh, for some people, though, I, I would like to point out that's just all of that just sounds good. People are like, I don't know what you're talking about. I want more game and I can mm-hmm. choose whether I want to stretch it out or not by playing side quests or not. And that's up to me. So, you know, more power to those people. And, uh, you know, like right now, I I know the pattern of the game and I like it when it breaks the pattern, but I'm in my third, maybe fourth kind of area that that a dog like creature pulls you around on sleds and you kill groups of enemies, you do little side quests and then you just or you can just go to the boss. Like that's like that 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 keeps happening. It's like um, it's like worlds in Super Mario World, the kind of modern version. It's it's kind of interesting. But um, yeah, you know, that's just that's what this game is. I think. 
I think it's a, a like a directly at odds with the kind of story this game's trying to tell. Like I think it's a, a very similar uh, criticism I have of a game like The Last of Us Part Two, where you want to make sure that there's plenty of game for a, a player to enjoy. But I think that the story it's telling is directly at odds with long drawn out gameplay sequences because they feel good versus what the story demands of that particular moment. So it feels like they're a little bit at odds with each other, story versus gameplay, where ideally, I think they'd be closer to a Last of Us 1, where it's a short and sweet experience. It's 10 hours, you're in, you're out, and you're good to go. But you know what? That said, I do love beating up fools as Kratos. So it all works <laughs> That's out. That's funny. Well. That's like an aspect of like any games that have you know exploration elements or, or larger areas. If you're going to do like a heart-palpitating story, Every time you're taking a second, they kind of like, and they try to explain that away with, oh, my dad likes loot, like stuff like that. It, it just comes to <laughs> It's like totally silly where it's like, if we don't get here, the end of the world is going to happen. And if we don't do this and this and this first, then, you know, and, and then it's just like, you stop and you're like, hmm, now where's that third torch I can light to get a Minotaur horn? <laughs> I do love the commentary of basically Kratos being a kleptomaniac throughout <laughs> there. Like, my dad loves loot. Yeah. You you don't understand, guys. He needs the loot. Yeah, they make so fun it, of it's, uh, it's other very characters silly. you play as, too. And they, yeah. they talk about, you know, oh, you have to pick up everything not nailed down. <laughs> yeah, It's really funny. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it also, like, that, that's like fourth wall breaking stuff where a game, like, tries to take itself really seriously in a lot of cases. But then you know there's a lot of fun to be had. It's an interesting balance to strike. Like there's like the, the big class of Easter eggs in this game um, have to do with poems you find, and um, it's completely like you know at odds with like the, the 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 kind of the serious nature of of what's happening. And I think that's that's what makes video games fun. And I think that that's a great thing. But also, it makes me also just like really skeptical of the games as storytelling devices in general because I just rather have the fun. And real quick on those poems, last one, because they're all uh, spoilers. Uh, maybe it's like an Easter egg yeah, thing. Yeah, take 30 seconds um, if you don't want to know this, although it's all over the place yeah. now. And it's from the beginning of the I'm, game. I'm going to hold for just a second, but the Kvasir's poems are all centered around PlayStation-exclusive titles. And I think I, I'm going to plant the flag right now, the, the sad flag. I think this might be the last time Sony ever acknowledges um, the Order 1886. Oh, wow. Ever. Yeah, yeah they, they actually uh, acknowledge it, and I was like, oh my god, they did it. Wow. Also, underrated game. Love Order 1886. Yeah. All right, Love sorry, it. I'm done. Wow. Okay. Well, they, I, some of the names are just, they just swap out, you know, the names of uh, these games with synonyms uh, for all the words in them. And the best one is called, like, it's like, it's like Large Society Ground Orb, the event. <laughs> and that's Major Wait. League Baseball, the show. Oh my god! I was trying to figure it out. Oh, sorry. That would be a fun is game. There one, this week. Is there one for Ghost of Tsushima? There is. There is. I don't. I don't know what it is. Off I don't the top know. Of my I head, just but... wrote the the Easter eggs page, and oh, if that's not? the case, then I called. I made a wrong call on one of them. No, I'm probably mistaken then. But um, I think the funniest one that made me chuckle the loudest was uh, the one that they had for Uncharted. That is very long. Yeah. It's like upon upon losing yourself in an uh, you know an unknown territory or something. <laughs> something silly. Well, that brings us to our first email from November 2019. Nice. It came from James Carter in the UK in Cheshire, UK. James said, "Hey guys, this is what uh, three years ago. 
Hey guys, love the show. Listen regularly on my commute to work. I've recently completed all of God of War and Spider-Man on my PS4 Pro after finally getting around to them. During these games, I found the combat really fluent and enjoyable, but often found that there were too many moves and combos to try and perform involving too many buttons, which led me to ignore them almost entirely. My question to you guys is whether in a game like God of War, you stick to a simple combat system or try and utilize all the combo moves you've been shown. And this relates to uh, some commentary that Sam had been oh, making yeah, about the game. Yeah. That, that I don't know. Nick, what do you think? Sam, and I might agree with him, uh, just think maybe there's just too many different uh, combos. It, it's starting to get into like Street Fighter territory. I think the game makes it very easy to find the old reliable when it comes to what your <laughs> what the combo is that works. Yeah, um, but that's it. I think the game allows for improvisation if you desire that extra layer of complexity. Um, I think the biggest difference between a game like God of War or, or Spider Man versus, say, Devil May Cry. Mm -hmm. uh, Devil May Cry demands that you utilize every single combo and tool at your disposal in order to succeed, whereas God of War and Spider Man. Not necessarily the case. They're just there for those people who want a little bit more. I think for the most part, most players in God of War tend to focus on just, hey, I am using a weapon and I will use all the combos for this weapon. And during this combat, just using this weapon. But I think the more advanced players mix and match in between combos of swapping weapons on the fly and utilizing all the different runic abilities and whatnot. So, and then really I advanced players just poison the enemies and they die much faster. <laughs> yeah, and then they run away the entire time and run in circles. <laughs> I think we'll the game allows for it, but it, it is, yeah, a little bit much at times. So let me let me qualify that criticism because I saw that portrayed unfairly. I don't give a crap about button combos. Put all the button combos in you want. Nick pointed out that's for some people. Do that. But since the game doesn't make you use them, I have no use to spend my skill points. That's, my, that's, that's my what I was going to say. So if there was a skill tree option for the way I like to play which is, say, vaulting enemies in the air or kicking them off cliffs. Or, um, you know, I do actually like the poison in the game. Like, there's no, there's no way for me to kind of, you know, keep on going those directions. I can just buy stuff that I'm never going to use. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, I, I yeah, feel I, the same way. Like, anytime a, a game with a skill tree has skills that you can buy that like, add extra combos to your combat, I just end up ignoring those because that's just, just not like... Like, it's, it's completely different from, like, so unlocking extra health for me, okay, that's just going to be a, a, that's just a passive benefit for me. I don't have to do anything else. Mm -hmm. I feel like unlocking new combos is like more work for me. It's just a, yeah, yeah. it's just another <laughs> thing that I have to think about, you know? One of the uh, great mid-game combat things I'm arriving at now is that I die in encounters or just have no problem with them and the same encounter. Like, I just won't be paying attention for a second and I'll be like, whoa, I just died. I can't believe I died. And then I'll go back there and be like, why did I die in that? These are just like kind of like mid-enemies. And then I'll be fine because it takes that much concentration to fight in this game. It is not mindless. And that is a great no. thing. Um, I just came off of Gotham Knights. That's totally mindless. Like they took out all the elements of you possibly being defeated by the enemies in that game. But Batman Arkham Asylum or Arkham City, it was not like that. You had to pay attention. Or Shadow of Mordor is a really good example of that too. Uh, they start adding combos, but the combos are funny in those games. They're like, it's like after you get around all the buttons, they, they don't make you do like, L1, 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 R1, L1. They make you do like press X and A together or Y and B together. And I always thought that was like a really fun innovation that like helped me remember I had more moves, but didn't make me think about like the, the you know, Shoryuken type moves. Cool.
Well, that's got to work, Ragnarok. It's out now. Scoop Nation is, uh, I'm, I'm sure, enjoying it. I'll be looking on in the Facebook group to see what, what yeah, I'm thinking. Yeah, first weekend. I hope everybody enjoys it this weekend. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a great game. I love it. Have both of you seen Black Panther? I have. I have Nick, not. you haven't. So Nick is, or I'm sorry, Sam is the only one who's seen it. Sam... What did you think? Do you guys want to talk about it? Totally. I, mean, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. I uh, like I just it. Wanted to know what, you know what? what Black, this movie is so similar to uh, Doctor Strange uh, and the Multiverse of Madness and then Thor like, 4 in the sense that like these movies are not like the other Marvel movies except for the, the, maybe the Infinity Warns. They're completely bloated and they have so much going on and some, like multiple factions and giant battles. And it's like, you know, I'm here for it. Uh, there's just always an element of them which is like, eh, this part isn't as well thought out because they're not tight, right? So it's like this one has this giant, you know, Namor civilization part of it. And like it, like Wakanda is like, when somebody tells you at face value, oh, there's been this hidden nation forever and like nobody's ever heard of it. And like at face value, you're like, that seems impossible, but they explain it really well. And I love how it's handled at Black Panther and the Infinity War. Uh, the the hidden water civilization is like it becomes a stretch. It's like there's another one of these, and like for like people like taking that in, they're like there's another one. You know, it's just kind of like silly, but um, but like they handle it as well as they could. It's like a bunch of mer people, you know. Like it's like this stuff shouldn't work, and like Marvel movies make this stuff work pretty dang well. So that's really fun. Uh, I saw it in uh, 4DX. Have you heard of this? So oh, heard yeah. Of it, yeah, this is a uh, Star Tours outfitted theater uh basically the, the the seats don't just jiggle or vibrate they go up and down like maybe a foot or more of motion you can get thrown like it is crazy uncomfortable while it's doing like a punchy kicky scene and it's like throwing you around like you're the characters it's not even for like you know spaceship crashes and stuff so that's kind of funny and they they uh they spray uh mist in which of course this is a very uh water heavy movie and they do flashes and uh smoke which there's no warning for right they don't tell you hey by the way the smoke that's going to happen in this movie is not the theater catching on fire and when you're on like the fourth floor in a skyscraper in san francisco you're like i don't know if this is the most comfortable movie experience but it was wild and like i don't know what movie people want to see like that but that exists out there so you know just be ready if you go in like maybe don't buy the drinks at the concession stand that are in glass bottles because <laughs> you'll chip your tooth maybe don't bring any liquids in at all because the seats are stained already and you can tell why it's crazy yeah. it's crazy so that was that was funny but like it didn't hurt or or, or or you know ruin the movie for me but it did interrupt the kind of you know when you start sinking in your seat and you get really locked into your movie that's my favorite thing about movies and so this was just a different experience i have a couple Questions uh, about Black Panther. We'll see if you can answer without any spoilers. I liked most of the original Black Panther, uh, but I was disappointed that the end, like the final act, does what so many Marvel movies do, and it's just like CGI vomit. And there's like a big fight between Black Panther and Killmonger that where they're just CGI like cartoon characters. Mm. Whereas I love the Russo brothers era of MCU, where the action scenes are all really good, really well choreographed. A lot of so much of it is happening in camera, and there wasn't an over reliance on CGI. So first of all. Is, the, is there an over-reliance on CGI fights? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it has a mix. I think it has some good, like, kind of fist-to-fist stuff. And, but one, and one of the CG sequences is actually really cool. It's like what you've never seen before. It's like a kind of a city destruction disaster thing that's, like, really fun to watch. Um, that was good. And, but there's, like, a, there's, a sea, there's sea battles, right? 
And those take place like on, you know, above the water and below the water. And like, nope, nobody's good at that. Not even James Cameron. I've seen those trailers. Like that stuff, that stuff just like, it just, it doesn't look They like, actually go like, in the water, Sam, in yeah. way of the water. Yeah. <laughs> so do they in this. And that was a trailer ahead of this and also Little Mermaid. And I was like, what is happening? <laughs> what is, like Water's everybody in this back, theater baby. is going to get sprayed for the next couple years based on the release schedule of these uh, movies. But uh, yeah, there, there's, there's, some, there's some overly CG stuff. And there's, there's you know, like the, the Marvel world that we live in now also has like, like tons of like Iron Man technology in it. Remember that from uh, the previous Spider, Spider-Mans? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of that too. And like Iron Man was always cool because it was like, you know, this jetting around thing. But like there's a lot of iron things now. And like that, that's the thing where it starts to add up and, and become a little bit CG heavy too. So just be ready for that. Not, not to mention, is- by the way, like the multiverse of madness and then the the um Ant-Man movie coming out. Those movies are like there's not a single scene set on Earth probably after the first five minutes. <laughs> so it's like all CG, yeah. which is like, that can that can be cool and like psychedelic and neat, or it can just be like a little bit weary, wearying. It's, you know, it's not like Andor. Watch Andor if you want to see like full CG all the time. Like they're, they film that on like Unreal Engine sets. And it's the best looking thing I've ever seen. It's just, it's just incredible. Every single scene is, you know, an amalgamation of like 70s, style from star wars and like crazy blade runner backgrounds and you know amazing stuff like watch that show if you want to see how this stuff could look it's amazing it took me a few episodes but now i'm fully on board with andor holy crap man the last three episodes i just cannot believe it it is the star wars thing to check out okay and then also sam you're uh you're reviewing a game now i think you at least share what you're going to review yeah, so I'm working on Atari 50, which is the uh, the Atari collection. I'm playing it on uh, multiple platforms, but here it is on the Switch. And uh, what's what's just completely amazing is that it has um, just the biggest like uh, bunch of background information, um, you know, stuff that you expect from a digital clips collection, but also uh, documentaries and stuff like that. And what's cool is that it start. It's not just Atari the console because that is that that is not as interesting for a lot of people. It's Atari Arcade, uh, the console, and then uh, the dawn of their PC era, they call it. They have a ton of like cool PC Atari games. And then 1990s, which is like Jaguar and Lynx. So Lynx. many games, over 100 games. And then they have rethought out games that the Digital Eclipse team, by the way, I know a lot of them, they're really uh, interesting developers with interesting backgrounds, right? They, just, they bring a lot to... Digital Eclipse, and they, they've got in there and just wanted to make games in, in addition to making this collection, right? So they have a bunch going on uh, of, of like kind of remastered stuff and remade and completely new, really uh, reimagined stuff. But as you go through, it's like the whole thing's built like this intricate mapped timeline. And you, you're going through it and you, you might see a business card or a quote, but the next thing might be a 10 minute interview with somebody really significant, Nolan Bushnell, who, you know, invented, wow. you know, who founded Atari or, you know, or, or it'll be like Tim Schafer and people like talking about their experience with a game they grew up playing. Like it's, it's like absolutely incredible. And, and it, the package looks so cool and Atari like, and I've just scratched the surface of this. I'm just going to like, you know, curl up and play this all weekend. I'm so excited. And um, let me just say like Atari is one of the few companies you can get away with this doing. Cause like, you know, they got all these games from all these generations. The licensing is interesting, and they can get that all. They can't get you know 
you know, uh, Star Wars games or anything like that, right? So that's missing. Uh, but like uh, I was remarking to Nick before this, Digital Eclipse, top of their game for collections. They do they do everything right. Uh, they did the TMNT collection earlier this year. But um, uh, they uh, Nintendo, like think about Nintendo actually doing no, this. No, I know, like, I we know. We would never get that type of archiving. They, they did it. They did a really cool archive booklet with um, Super Mario All-Stars on Wii. And then they also did Iwata Asks, this internet series, uh, 10 years ago now, that was actually compiled into a book, which is really good. But it, that was missing the media, which was a bunch of scans and stuff from their archives. Um, Digital Eclipse, like when they got, like this is like the quintessential thing for them to get. Like the Atari archives, it spans generations. And there's a lot of like fun games you might not know about that, that they can show you in this. Um, and, and like, you know, it, I'm already looking at games that I've heard about my entire life, like 20, minor 2049er. And like, I just went in there and played that. And it's like a totally, like, completely silly, but fun Donkey Kong knockoff that I've always wanted to play. And it's like, it looks present, everything immediately is presented with like, you know, what you what this should look like on a television. It looks great. Mm-hmm. It just looks so cool. They got the bezel for Pong. They went out and took pictures Got that, put it in there. I have a Pong machine in my house. It's it's about you know 20 feet away from me. And I played, you know, I know that game inside and out. I work on it. This this sounds more like Pong than anything I've ever heard. They got the sound right, the look right, and it's just like unbelievable the love that went into this. So look look out for more on that. A question I have regarding the Atari thing is just from someone who uh like nes and super nintendo were my first consoles and i have gone back since to try and play a lot of atari games and they didn't quite grab me the way uh, you know like an nes uh remake would or an nes collection is there something that like you think could hook people who have never like never touched an atari before or and even an atari oh, yeah. um, like title like something older is there an nes remix style thing where it just here's a grab bag of all the games you have 15 seconds to play this part of them or something like that. The, the closest thing is that they've, they've taken some of the classic games and just kind of redone them in a very uh, uh clever way so you can like play these standalones that are like that but let me say Atari might not ever be for everybody because it's primitive and, and it, it was way behind the arcades at the time and PCs. This collection has arcade games and PC games in it that are much more interesting for a lot of people probably than the Atari classics. So they're the, the 2600 games. So explore the 2600 games and then you're only scratching the surface of what's in this collection. Um, you know, Jaguar alone is like such a weird, wild, cool system to dip in. I mean, we're, we're seeing some of the games right now. And then the end of the Atari era, like iRobot, which is super cool and fun, like stuff mm-hmm. like that, like check those out. And the, the, the vector games that are, you know, done to the best of the ability, uh, you know, that you can emulate them. Uh, you know, stuff like that is in there. So um, not exactly right, like Remix, but I think the an equivalent um, amount of like, kind of uh, ways to pick your interest uh, if you are trying to explore this stuff. Nice. Can't wait to check it out. We'll see if I can step away from God of War. For I know. It's a <clears> tough <throat> time of year, but you know what? Uh, we have a whole year until Atari's 51. And now we are joined by a very special guest, Warren Davis, designer and programmer of the of Qbert 
One of, one of the, one of the greats uh, from the golden age of arcade games, a game which recently celebrated its 40th anniversary last year. Warren, welcome to the show. Thank you welcome. so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. It's so cool to have you here. Kubert you know, would be on the, the Mount Rushmore of you know, the, ar- the golden age of arcades. <laughs> difficult to carve, in. though. Yeah, difficult to carve the, 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 the snout. I don't which, know. What do you call which, it? Is it a snout that Kubert has? Which, which face would he be? Would he be... Uh, <laughs> oh, I don't know who he would... Would he be Lincoln? Who's or? the analog? Yeah, <laughs> sure. Let's go with Lincoln. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, man, so Kubert, you know, like we were Cube saying, Lincoln. Cube Lincoln. Uh, <laughs> one of the absolute classics from that era of arcades, and it was the first game that you worked on, is that correct? That That is, well, it's not the first game I worked on. It's the okay. first game I had responsibility for. Okay, interesting. Okay. So, what was what was the first games you worked on? What was the path like to Hubert? Uh, so I was hired uh, by Gottlieb in January of 1982. And the first thing they, they had me do was work with a programmer named Tom Malinowski to sort of just learn the ropes, to learn the hardware, help him out mm. with a game he was creating. Uh, that game was never released back in the day, hmm. although uh, in recent years uh, it was resurrected and and put into a cabinet at the Galloping Ghost Arcade in uh, outside cool. of Chicago, and it's called Argus. Oh, but originally ah. it went by many names. <laughs> <laughs> Where did the so, whole idea for Cuba come from? Well, so you know, after that game was uh, was canceled. Uh, I mean, I didn't do much on it. I just was sort of helping out. But when mm. it was canceled, then basically my job was to make a game. So I had to make a game. <laughs> so I, you know, I didn't have any. I didn't, you know, it was my first time, so I didn't really have like a million ideas sitting in my back pocket. But uh, I really felt like I still had more to learn. Um, I, I hadn't uh, played with a couple of concepts like randomness or gravity in what I did for uh, Argus. Ooh. So um, I really just wanted to teach myself some more things. And and one day I just happened to see uh, on a screen uh, the, the cube pattern that uh, was created by Jeff Lee, but he created it uh, as a full screen image for Kanyabamoto, who is another programmer, best known for Mad Planets. Uh, but that, of course, had yet to come. But he, he was playing around with uh, switching the foreground and background planes because our hardware had a foreground and a background. And uh, oh. he was just using that, uh, the cube pattern as eye candy as a background and then switching it for foreground, whatever. Um, but I saw that on the screen and I, and I thought, Oh, this is interesting because if, if something were to fall and uh, on the top cu- on, if you carved it into a pyramid and, mm. and something fell on the top cube, it would have one of two ways to bounce down to the left or down to the right. And so it seemed like, you know, you know, I could, I could, if I could do that, if I could program a ball bouncing down a pyramid of cubes, then I will have taught myself randomness, gravity, a little bit of collision detection. You know, mm-hmm. it just, it just seemed like a great goal, uh, you know, as a programming exercise. And so that is what I set about to do. And that is what I did. Uh, I still was not thinking that this is a game. I just was trying to teach myself. So when people saw it, they thought, oh, this is pretty cool. You should do something with that. And I thought, oh, I guess I could have a player character who's hopping around. 
the cube you know, or the pyramid. So uh, it, it just pr proceeded like that. I mean, I call it an evolutionary game design because there literally was no game design at the beginning. It's just that every time I added something and I was done with it, then I said to myself, well, what should I do next? When you describe it as a game about gravity, it's basically, um, you know, physics are a huge part of game development now, and, and it's kind of a prototype for all the physics we have now. And and it's kind of funny because that like kind of logically, you know, extends to slinkies, right? And would those go downstairs too, and, and mm -hmm. things that, that, as you mentioned, rolling and falling. Um, one interesting thing about the Qbert hardware and the cabinet itself is that uh, if Q objects fall off that plane, they have a little bit of a timing, and then there's a, a physical knock from the cabinet, for, which I presume is like a pinball knocker. Is that what that is? Yeah, that's there, exactly I've what that seen. is, yeah. Mm -hmm. And of course, Gottlieb had access to that hardware because they were in the, the business of making pinball machines for many decades. So, um, the, and then uh, did you have some involvement in that final packaging of Qbert? I mean, it's a diagonal joystick too. That's, that's interesting too. And those are all like weird hardware things that, that seemed really fun to play with at the time. You know, how did you come about those and what was your involvement there? Well, I mean, I, I, the diagonal joystick, you know, I, I never ever looked at as revolutionary. I mean, w given the play field, you had <laughs> four yeah. ways to move and they were all diagonal. So to take a four-way joystick and just rotate it 45 degrees, you know, I didn't see that as revolutionary. I just saw that as obvious. Um, why it threw so many people, even, you know, in the office, people in the office when I was developing it, it, it you know, they had a hard time with it. They just couldn't wrap their brain around that concept. But I, you know, I stuck to my guns because I, I literally, th there was no other option. Mm -hmm. So um, I didn't see that as particularly revolutionary. I mean, the 3D stuff, I mean, I was, you know, certainly fascinated with the, the trying to recreate a, a, a pseudo 3D environment with 2D hardware. That was, you know, you the goal was always to try to move towards, uh, you know, realism and, and, and photo quality. Even back then, we only had 16 colors, but we were, I think, all of us envisioning a time where, you know, we would have, you know, full physics and, and full you know graphics right. uh but at the time you know you work with what you have and so that's kind of what i did uh what about the knocker how'd that come about yeah the knocker was actually the idea of an engineering technician who worked for us his name is rick ty and uh he suggested it because you know he you know as the game was developing people in the office would watch it so certainly had gotten to the point where you know Kubert's jumping off the pyramid uh, or Coily's falling off the pyramid. He thought, oh, what if we put a pinball knocker in there? And I thought, oh, that's an interesting idea. Let's let's try it, which we did. And uh, but the sound kind of bugged me because it was it didn't sound like a body hitting the mm -hmm. ground, which is what I, I wanted it to represent. <laughs> An adorable uh, like, body this big. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, but it, it sounded like a knock at the door. And mm -hmm. I thought eh. so. We, we actually experimented with with a lot of things, things we could put uh, in that spot where the knocker hits the cabinet to try yeah. to soften that sound. And mm -hmm. I thought we came up with a pretty good solution. And I was very happy and excited. So we went to management and we said, hey, we got this great feature. Well, they were like, yeah, sure. We got millions of pinball knockers we could put in there. Uh, they probably wanted to get rid of them. But uh, the the foam, the little piece of foam that we put in to soften the sound, they they, they did, were like, oh, well, we'd have to buy it. And we have to mm -hmm. labor for somebody to go in and glue it to the exact right spot. And it, they didn't want to go for that. So... 
No, you know, as so one recommend a mod, if you were going to recommend today to a Qbert mm-hmm. owner, you'd say you should get the phone because that's how it's. Supposed I do. To be. I do that all the time now when I talk. That's great. I, I recommend that. Yeah, I've done it to my own cabinet at home. It sounds great. Yeah, I mean, pinball knockers are can be very violent. I mean, they're meant for a completely different purpose of reminding you not to walk away from your game, right? Um, I think luckily the- a, a lot of the uh, a lot of the machines that are still existing today, you know, those mm-hmm. those coils are 40 years old and so they've softened a little bit they're not quite as violent as new ones don't i know it um so uh, uh what like you we hear a lot about company culture at atari and what that was like in uh, especially you know 77 to 83 or so um what was gottlieb's company culture like what was what was the creative you know was it creative was it you know partying like what, how, what was it like to work there <laughs> Uh, it, it changed over the course of the time I worked there. And I, I mean, I was there maybe two, two years. I don't think oh, it, I don't think it lasted longer than that, but it changed quite a bit. When I started, we were, uh, sort of a satellite group separate from the main plant, separate from the pinball factory. And we had a lot of freedom and, and the two guys who ran the department, uh, Howie Rubin was the VP of business development and Ron Waxman was the VP of engineering. And they were the guys who ran the department and they protected us from Gottlieb's upper management back at the home plant. Oh. So, uh, but they both were very much uh, committed to letting the programmers do, do what they wanted. You know, they didn't impose anything. Basically all they imposed was make a game. That's what they said. You're hired to make a game, make us a game. Uh, and, and so it was very much of a like think tank uh, environment when I started. There weren't a lot of people. Uh, Gottlieb had not released an in-house game when I started. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tim Skelly was doing putting the finishing touches on Reactor when I was hired. So Love the game. plant was empty. And uh, yeah, it was a wonderful environment to sort of just work. There's no pressure. It seemed like there was, you know, it was just really an exploratory uh, uh, environment where the management put their trust in you that changed (laughs) after a while, but yeah, I mean, I wanted to ask about that. It's kind of obvious why Gottlieb would get into video games at the time because they were just huge and they had been making pinball machines for they're They're set up for this. Right. Um, But why, why do you, why did Gottlieb get out of it? Why was Kubert basically the flash in the pan? And then Gottlieb is not the household name in games now. Well, uh, first of all, it's not entirely true that Qbert was the only thing that Gottlieb produced. uh, Qbert was certainly a huge success. One, Mm -hmm. Uh, Mad Planets came out after. It it wasn't the huge success it was, but it was a success. Mm -hmm. But the the other blockbuster success they had was Mach Three, which was a laser disc game, and that was a huge, huge success for Gottlieb. Uh, Paved the way for my ability to do another laser disc game called Us Versus Them. But what happened, unfortunately, uh, I mean, it was a mix of things. First of all, Gottlieb was owned by Columbia Pictures, which got bought by Coca-Cola. <laughs> wow. So now you had Coca-Cola was our corporate overlord. And it's questionable to me whether Coca-Cola really wanted to have uh, a pinball company, a video game company. It's very possible they were uh, influential, maybe, in shutting Gottlieb down. Because that, that's what happened to Gottlieb. It was shut down. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh and I don't believe it was losing money either. Uh, it wow. was shut down, but there were other factors like the uh, crash. There was a, basically an arcade crash. Exactly. Right. Of course, you know, when, when video first had its, you know, 
its um, success pinball waned. So I think they were a little leery of maintaining a pinball division because they thought pinball might be dying forever. And then, you know, video, there was an arcade crash in 84. Uh, and I, maybe they thought that's it. This is a flash in the pan. They just, the video arcade mm-hmm. industry is a flash in the pan. Uh, and that might be why they did it, but it, it you know, it, I, I don't, I wasn't there, you know, I was just a lowly <laughs> yeah. grunt. So, uh, but, but yeah, Gottlieb was shut down by their parent company. Well, that explains the mellow yellow connection then. <laughs> yes, indeed. Indeed. Yeah. Well, getting back to the design of Qbert, you're, you're, you're experimenting with the pyramid design and the, and the falling and bouncing mechanics. What about the, the actual character of Qbert? Where did that come from? Right. Well, I, you know, I, I had none. I had no characters in my back pocket and I wasn't an artist. So uh, the first thing I did when it was time to put a player character up is I went to basically the only artist available to us who was Jeff Lee, who fortunately was an amazing artist <laughs> and a genius. Uh, and I just said, Jeff, do you have any characters that you've created on your own that I you're not using, that I can borrow? Hmm. And he put a bunch up on the screen. And uh, I, I, I looked him over and I, I liked the orange one with the long nose because he, he kind of looked somewhat <laughs> pathetic. Uh, and I thought, oh, that's, that's something people can relate to. So I... I he granted me the use of that character and he made me all the angles, you know, that I needed and looking in the directions and he just gave me everything I needed. And I went ahead and programmed, uh, programmed that character. Now I also mentioned that the reason he had the long nose, Jeff designed him that way because in Jeff's mind, he would be used in a game where he would shoot out of his nose. Right. That was, you know, and, and Jeff thought that was amusing. And so did I I thought it was hysterical actually. Uh, but it was way too complicated for me at the time. I'm trying to keep things simple. It's my first game. Uh, you, and the perspective, you know, the, the pseudo 3d perspective, I was like, Oh, I have no idea how to make shooting work. So, uh, I, I never, I really never seriously considered shooting out of his nose. I just yeah. used the character. Mm-hmm. So Hubert was just like, uh, it was more than a game at the time. It was a phenomenon. I think like Pac-Man and, and what we call mascot uh, mascots for video game companies later, like Mario and Sonic, you know, that, that's the kind of the company that Qbert I think keeps. Um, there's a cartoon, there's lots of merchandise and other yeah. things. Do you recall like just like a bizarre place that Qbert turned up uh, at the time that was just a shock to you? Uh, well, he turned up in the movie Moscow on the Hudson. That was a pretty much oh, of a shock. Really? I, I did, not, did not realize that he was going to be in that movie. Uh, yeah, I mean, that was a Robin Williams movie came out <clears throat> somewhere, you know, 83, 84. I'm not really sure. But yeah, I remember seeing that movie and there was a shot where Cuber was in it and they actually had a close up shot of Cuber uh, jumping off the pyramid. I think oh. I, I, I had heard stories. They filtered into me through, you know, channels that Robin mm-hmm. Williams loved uh, the sounds of Cubert and would like, you know, make Cubert sounds, but mm-hmm. never confirmed that. Never was able to confirm that. that makes sense, right? The Huber cartoon is wild, by the way. It's 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 yeah. a, it's like an American graffiti or like a, a kind of fifties amalgamation, yeah. like soda like soda shop yeah. sort of like yeah. vibe, right? Like yeah, right. And and yeah, we were all to- we had no input, obviously. Uh, yeah, licensing, uh, Jeff, licensing, right? Jeff and I, and of course, I need to mention the third member of our team, who's the Dave Field, who did the sounds. So hmm. you know, we you know, th- we were what I call the the Cubert triumvirate. Uh, you know, my job was designer and programmer, and I saw myself as a filter through which all ideas would pass, and I would say yes or no. But 
Dave and Jeff, their contributions were just so extraordinary uh, and, and impactful that I always felt we were a team. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and I, I loved working with them both. So, uh, but I got sidetracked there. So, you know, the, the original, I can't remember the original question was. Uh, um, we were just talking about, about weird places that Hubert showed up. And then we yeah. talked about the cartoon a little bit because the cartoon was so wacky. <laughs> yeah, that's what we were, we were on the cartoon. And, and and I remember the three of us just saying, you know, you know what the hell? You know, I remember Jeff was <laughs> stunned. I mean, people would people would say to us, what were you smoking when you came up with the idea for Cubert, right? But, yeah. you know, we looked at that cartoon show. We were like, what are these guys smoking when they took this video game and turned it into that, you know? I mean, he had arms. He spoke English. It's just like, yeah. okay. Yeah. I mean, I can I can sympathize with, you know, they're tasked with making a cartoon out of this video game <laughs> yeah. that literally has no story attached to it. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I think we would have gone in a different direction. So after Gottlieb, you went to Williams. Is that right? Right. Yeah. With a a little brief interlude, uh, when Gottlieb shut down, I I took a job outside the video game industry. And I honestly didn't know if that was the end of my video game career because, Mm -hmm. you know, who knew? Uh, But I got a call from a headhunter about a year and a half after that um, saying, would you like to get back in the video game industry? And I did not have to hesitate. So... uh, (laughs) And it was Williams calling. So, yeah, they. Uh, I, I went to work for Williams. Uh, it was around March of 1986, I think, something like that. So it, we, we, I know we have to kind of wrap this interview shortly, but uh, it, 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 you presided over a pretty interesting series of huge hits uh, at Midway at, at that point uh, with the digitization of um, you know imagery into games that, that became Mortal Kombat and NBA Jam and stuff like that. Um, what, what would, that era was a return to form for arcades. The things really came mm-hmm. back then. I mean, uh, uh, what, you know, what was it like having kind of that resurgence that you were kind of alluding to? Oh, it was a fantastic. I mean, you know, we, I think everybody kind of, I don't think anybody really thought arcades, people working on arcades games, I don't think thought that the video industry was going to die forever. I think it sort mm. of was understood that, it grew so fast and became mm. saturated so fast, it made sense there was going to have to be a correction. It couldn't sustain that growth. So I don't know if the crash was that big of a surprise to people in the industry, but um, the fact that it came back, you know, I mean, they hired me. So clearly it was coming <laughs> back. You know, I didn't have to predict anything. But I think what we always wanted to do in the arcade industry is stay one step ahead of the home games. Because we always felt, you know, if people can get the same experience at home, why would they go to an arcade, right? I mean, yeah, obviously, there yeah. are social reasons. But still, you know, we, we wanted to stay one step ahead. And for me, that meant increasing the number of colors and trying to get more uh, movie-like, movie-quality graphics right. or photo, photo quality. And uh, I really never envisioned the whole 3D polygon thing. That, that You know, <laughs> when, when the industry went in that direction, I thought, oh, okay, I didn't see that coming. I always thought... You know, it was the digitizing that was going to really, mm-hmm. you know, expand. Sprites but of course, would just get better and better and better, right? Right, right. But and then, resolution. you know, honestly, uh, it, you know, I think the 3D polygons were, in fact, the way to go because now, you know, graphics are just insanely movie-like. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, uh, I don't know that I would have even envisioned the the quality of things like fur and hair and water and all the particle yeah. work. That I mean, that that just you no know, incredible. Uh, 
but it was fun to see it all sort of slowly come about. Um, all those advances right. must make it difficult to, uh, you know, I know Kubert's depicted in things like Wreck-It Ralph and stuff like that now, but it's just kind of funny to think of a character like that, like choosing, like, do we have to put fur on Kubert now? Like, <laughs> what does he have? Pimples? Like, what, what kind of creature is this? Yeah. The more well, detailed, the, only, the worse. Even in the cabinet art, he has what looks like fur. So, yeah. you yeah. know, uh, yeah, I think that, that that's not a decision that had to be made later on, but uh it was just being true to the character. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, riding the, the Williams high, you know, of all those hits was mm -hmm. just fantastic, you know. And and of course, my my contribution was just making that digitizing system. It's really all the guys who used it, you know, uh, in, mm -hmm. in different ways. Uh, you know, Mortal Kombat, uh, Ed Boon and John Tobias, the way they they made their characters so large. And, mm -hmm, and, yeah. and divided them into body parts so that, you know, you, you know, I just, you know, it was genius. It was really a, a smart thing to do. And it, it just made the game stand out. Um, you know, I were, I was also on the development team for Terminator two and revolution X. Yeah. yeah. So I was working on those Uzi games. games. Yeah. yeah. While I, I wasn't the lead on those, that was George Petro and Jack Hager. So, but, uh, you know, I was contributing to those games. But all the other games like NBA Jam, I mean, really, my contribution was just the digitizing system, which I mm -hmm. which I uh, continued to improve over the years as mm -hmm. our hardware got faster, mm -hmm. our color resolution got better, our pixel resolution got better. So I, I would put in more advanced features, blah, blah, blah. But it was uh, it was fun for me because to me, that was the future. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you'd come a long way since Journey and the uh, little black and white photos. of Yeah, band, right. right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, Warren, thank you so much for joining us today. You've had such a very cool career from Qbert to, you know, the, 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 the tech that made Mortal Kombat possible. It's very, very cool. Um, like I said, I think Qbert absolutely holds up today as one of the, you know, the all-time great arcade games that is still... If I walked into an arcade today and they had Qbert, I'd want to I'd play Qbert. Well, thank just you. Just as fun I as it ever was. That, that means yeah. a lot to me. And, and uh, you know, I should mention if anybody wants to hear more about that in more details, I have uh, written a memoir, which just came out this year. Oh, very cool. And uh, it's available on Amazon, and I welcome anybody to check it out. It's called Creating Cubert and Other Classic Video Arcade Games. Very that cool. Is extremely cool. I think I will check that out myself. All right, Warren, thank you so much. Congratulations again. Thank yeah, you so much, congrats. guys. Yeah. 40. Okay, this is the next uh, email from our archives. This is also from November 2019. And now we're getting, starting to get into stuff where the listeners are commenting on what we were talking about at the time. Let's see if we can remember. This is Guy. Guy says, I'm a long-term listener here, fan of the show. I'm from Belgium. I'm in my late 30s. I started playing games on the Atari 2600. Smurfs was the OG Dark Souls on that thing. Just thinking yes, about that era, it turns is. on the bleeps and bloop noises in my head. I own just about every console since then actually owned a game store for over eight years, specializing in retro games. After that, I started working for Microsoft as a product marketing manager for five years. So yeah, I have some history. This makes me a very active participant whenever you guys are playing 20 questions. I got triggered by last week's episode to finally write in when you mentioned the pause music for Asterix. First of all, I'm, this is Damon talking. We all know who we're talking about here. I mean, Asterix. The comic, yeah. Yeah, like the comic book it's, character. It's the Viking that there's an NES game for <laughs> that only came okay. out in Europe. Okay, it's funny you just said that. Getting back to Guy's email. Asterix is not a Viking. He's a Gaul. Gauls were from northern France and okay. Belgium before okay. those. You read that email on the show before. I remember Guy writing in and correcting not us. Not this on one. 
Really? Okay. This one. I thought we got corrected uh, on the Gallic nature of. Uh, yeah, he he. So he goes on a lot on, in the history of of Europe and Asterix. He says Asterix yeah. is a comic book from where I am and is as famous here as Spider Man to you guys. Mm-hmm. Many movies and games have been released over the past thirty years or so. It's a continuing successful franchise. So I don't know why we were talking about Asterix, which is a character that I, I'm only familiar with through this video game that we're seeing here, which I've never oh. played. I'm just like seeing the box and like seeing the artwork. That's all. I mean, mm-hmm. my normal answer would be that Jared was on the show. Maybe that was the mm-hmm. case. It could be Asterix and Obelix. Yeah. I don't know why we would have been talking. About, you, you must be right. It must be Jared Petty. <laughs> this is also, this is another email from Milko. Milko. Who says, I'm listening to episode 555 and heard you guys have a small debate about who Asterix is. I'm not one for corrections, (laughs) but this is close to my heart since I grew up with Asterix. Asterix is from Gaul, a territory in what is now France, not Greek or Viking. He's one of two main characters in the Asterix and Obelix series of comics, which also spawned many animated movies and games, as well as a live action film or two. The foundation of the stories is blah, 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 blah. Over 30 comic books are in existence, and the animated movies are each based on a book, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, I hope you find this interesting, and that you check Asterix out. I'm sure you'll have some fun. Okay, and so also, a lot of if you check Asterix this. out, you will be forgiven for thinking that they have some sort of Viking uh, nature to them, because sure. they all have little Viking helmets and are wearing braids and uh, beat people up with axes. Yep, yeah. But uh, as was the style at the time. As was, which was the style at the time. Uh, Asterix, not a very popular uh, character here in the United States, I don't think. Yeah, so we didn't get the NES port. Okay, this is Leo Mateo, also from November 2019, commenting on, I I have no idea what we would have been talking about. He says, Omega Cops, I'm a long-time listener. I love GameScoop to the death. Best podcast IGN has going by far. I was listening to GameScoop this week. I have a few things to say. Number one, I was also an owner of a ColecoVision. It was my first console. I'm 37. I own two games, Donkey Kong and a top five worst game of all time, Smurfs. Yeah, Literally, yes, the grass killed game. you. Um, the grass killed you in Smurfs, apparently. Everything kills you Number- in Smurfs. And then you get to the <laughs> end of the level and, or the end of the first part and you have no idea how to progress. It's fascinating. Number two, he says, I'm a veteran, so I know that the military does not use bazookas anymore. <laughs> They use an evolved form of it called the AT4 anti-tank, and yes, the trigger is on the top. We were talking about bazookas, I guess. I get I some I often wonder things like, do they still use bazookas? Yeah. That's still a thing. <laughs> well, you, whenever, whenever you get them in Resident Evil, they call them RPGs, right? The rocket propelled grenades, which is still a tube yeah. with a rocket in it. It's just bazooka well, must have been the, like, the old school terminology for a different version of it. But in like um like Resident Evil, like your RPGs, you're holding it like kind of like a shotgun. So no, you hold it up, right? Well, what about Metal Gear? Hold it like you this? hold it up, right? In Metal Gear, you, Metal Gear, you hold it up. Yeah, yeah. And then Call of Duty is the AT4 as well. So I think when you get you the infinite have... launcher, when you get infinite launcher, I think you hold it up. I think Leon like holds it up like this, uh, especially for the one shot. Yeah, I think so. You may, you may be right. There's no way to know. Maybe well, I have seen. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, okay, this is an email from Kevin. I don't think we're going to have much... I don't think we're gonna be able to help Kevin because Kevin writes this is this <laughs> is his message with no punctuation or capitalization. Mm-hmm. This is Kevin from Pennsylvania. I wanted to ask you guys. My NAT type is strict on Xbox. Unsuccessful guys, should I worry about? Because when I go online, I get no lag whatsoever. Let me know first time writing in. Keep up the great work. Watch you guys every week. Sam's my favorite. 
<laughs> if, I, I would have liked at the end of that and beware of 2020, y'all. <laughs> I mean, pro tip, uh, nat type two. There you go. You're good yeah. to go, man. So yeah, that adjust re- that on your modem and you're good to go. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Five dollars. <laughs> this is Tobias in Stockholm, Sweden. Does his location give you any sort of guess as to what he's writing in about? About Asterix? <laughs> I just listened to GameScoop episode 555. <laughs> I noticed that you guys didn't seem to know Asterix and Obelisk. Obelix. <laughs> first of all, you guys didn't seem... Uh, first of all, they are not Vikings. Neither are they Romans. They are Gaulish warriors fighting the Roman Empire. But this is this French comic series not known in America? No, Tobias. No. No one knows who these people are. And if they are aware not of them... Not people. They think- they're Gauls. <laughs> If they are aware of them, they think they're Viking. <clears throat> we got just a couple more here. Uh, this is Cena from Royal Oak, Michigan. I think we're getting into actually some serious questions now. I was browsing through IGN's list of the 100 greatest games of all time. Notice that the top two games on the list, Legend of Zelda, Link to the Past, and Super Mario World, were both released almost 30 years ago. Maybe they were 30 years ago but not by at this point. I'm not here to argue they're right to be at the top of this list, but with how much games have evolved since the Super Nintendo, I'm surprised that no game has been able to unseat these two 16-bit titles. Do you think that the next three decades will bring along a game that can top this list? If so, what would it take to claim the title of greatest game of all time, or will nothing ever be able to compete with these 2D classics? And what happened since then? We, We redid that list. And what's number one? A game that had come out by that time, even. Wait, which wild? Oh, no, it's Breath of the Wild. What is our current number one? I, I don't want to... Oh, it's Wild. Breath of the Wild? Yeah. I think God of War is up there, too. It is interesting. Like, you know, I bet, like... I bet... When, um, when we've, like... When there's a whole new regime in games media, it will be interesting to see, like, what, what the top 100 games of all time look like 20, 30 years from now. Yeah. I mean, it's it's also a tricky conversation, too, based on, like, the, the demographics of the people who are putting the list together, right? Because, you know, uh, like, like I was saying earlier, like, NES and SNES were my first consoles, therefore I have some sort of nostalgia for, you know, Chrono Trigger is one of my favorite games of all time. But to um, a good friend of mine who's never, like, played Chrono Trigger, they're like... They, they were able to revisit it in 2020 and they had a fantastic time doing so. So maybe there is something to just games that are fundamentally good to play no mm-hmm. matter what age you are. And I think I think Link to the Past, I think Super Mario World are there for a reason because they are pretty pick up and play no matter what you do. All right, I'll read you our top 10 games. And you can see there's even a little bit of recency bias in here. Yeah, um, I, I, think right, I, know, so, I think I know what you mean with number 10. Yeah, 10, Disco Elysium. <laughs> Uh, half. I'm, I'm sure that game holds up and people love it. I'm not not slagging that game, but the ten best ten best game of all time was a uh, was a strong argument from our staff that year, and I don't know if they'd make that argument. Uh, Half Life Two uh, is number nine. Uh, number eight is Red Dead Redemption Two. Number seven is Super Mario sixty four. Number six is Mass Effect Two. Number five is Super Metroid. Number that's getting a little rusty, I think. Number four is The Legend of Zelda: A Link to the Past. Number three is Portal Two. Uh, number two is wow. Super Mario World, and number one is The Legend of Zelda: Breath of the Wild. So, still a lot of classics in there, um, but you know, I think we worked hard on. Get, well, I mean, number thirteen is Hades, so you can tell, like, you know, yeah. there was some modern influence in there. Not only modern influence, but games that had kind of come out that year. Um, these are things that happen when you vote on things. <laughs> yeah, but like I was saying, like. 
when you when you when you when people kids that are like 10 years old today you know when they when they grow up and they when you have a whole like generation of people that didn't grow up with an super nintendo or not an nes they didn't grow up with even an n64 like a playstation 2 or gamecube was their first console you know They're, those lists are going to look totally different 20 30 years from now yeah probably a lot of minecraft in the yeah. top 10s i would assume yeah, that's another minecraft overwatch league yep. of legends dota that's yeah. gonna be it. That's gonna be it's, the tops. Maybe, maybe Fortnite. Like I, I kind of feel like it's yeah, such sure. a prescient thing. And I, I feel mean, like Super Mario Brothers One was at the top of our list when I started. So definitely Fortnite. Like in the times we grew up with gaming media, which was magazines in like the '90s and stuff. Gaming was so much smaller than that. To be like to consider yourself a gamer and like to read those magazines, you basically had an interest in at least knowing about every video game that was out there, even if you weren't playing them. I think there was a general consensus as to like what the best games were for each platform. But gaming is so big, so broad now. There's so many uh, you know, different like niches and, and, and genres that have come around since then. Like there are people that are hardcore into just like one very specific game or genre, but they don't play anything else. So I feel like there's much less of a consensus today as to like what the greatest games are of all time. I bet the people that spend that much time with, you know, live games or service games um, that play them, they don't even think of those as the best games ever. They're just, that's just their social life, right? Yeah. So it's like, it's, it, it complicates things immensely. One more question from 2019. This came from Jonathan, who asks, if sport games were no more, would you care? When was the last time you played a sports game? Do you think sports games have had an effect or has influenced video games or the game industry in any way, whether it be significant or not? Let's just have Nick handle this one. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I think this is such an interesting question because I think for the most part, a lot of the staff at IGN, there are a couple outliers. I know Ryan McCaffrey. I know Cat Bailey. They like sports titles. Um, but I think the UK a, a plays the soccer games. I think a vast majority, though, are could could basically uh, couldn't bat an eye, could bat an eyelid at these games going away forever. But I think that is kind of a disservice to some extent because I think by exposing yourself to what 90% of the rest of the world loves to play a la FIFA. Um, like, I, I think you can learn a lot more about gaming and gaming practices as a whole, especially in regards to like the FIFA, all whatever they call their card thing. Like it's such an interesting thing that if, if uh, you know, uh, any other triple, if God of War had a, a collectible card game that came with it that you could buy and invest in, people would lose their minds. But the fact that it's happening for FIFA and it's so just expected as part of the population is so fascinating to me. But if it were the enthusiast side of the press, I think there'd be pitchforks all over the place. Uh, also, I love the idea that you're seeing a lot more sports games now with their single player modes, having a lot more of a light RPG experience integrated in. I think that's good. So, uh, I, and you, you see like normal AAA style experiences started to leak into sports games. And I think you're also seeing the inverse of that as well, where you have uh, aspects and mechanics from sports games leak into um, trip like contemporary AAA games like Persona 5 has a, a home run contest in it, you know, stuff like that. Like, I don't know. I, I like that they exist because they could inspire and influence and also just a different side of the gaming culture. Mm -hmm. Time was that uh, the, 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 those were the couch competitive games, right? And then like, like mm -hmm. NHL 94 era, right? And then, um, you know, we got couch competitive 
cart games and shooters. So like that that was kind of next generation of that. Mm-hmm. But from what I understand, people still get together and play, you know, NBA 2K on the couch, right? Like that's that's still a part of it. And I think hockey is still really fun. NHL games are still pretty fun that way. So that's that's a really cool aspect of those games. And I was watching that what is it, Welcome to Wrexham show that mm-hmm. uh right that Rob McElhenney put together and like players that are on the soccer team, they live together and they, when they're done playing soccer IRL, they play FIFA Mm -hmm. together in the same room. So it's just like, it is so pervasive in a way that I don't think even stuff like God of War is, you know? Oh yeah. Football's life. Yeah. Um, And I think sports games have probably been really influential to other games in the industry in, in the, in, in terms of the march towards realism. Right, mm-hmm. realistic graphics, because like sports, sports games were the first games that I would like glance at a TV totally. and think I was seeing a real sporting event. Right? Yeah. Well, and they were the early, really early breakthrough voices. That was like a big deal. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, freaking, I mean, like, freaking Madden, right, was the voice mm-hmm. in the game, and before yeah. that, it was like Joe Montana talking football. Like all those games yeah. were. Innovative. And I, really, forget, I, I forget which MLB game it was, but that was like an active effort put forth by the developer and probably one of the execs that this game needs to look as indistinguishable from real life as mm. possible. And so when it came out now, it's primitive by our standards, but like when it what came about out, the like, elements Whoa. of, to your point, Nick, the elements of games leaking into reality, because now there's like all of the, the, you know, lines and scoring and augmented reality stuff that they add that were like totally in video games before that. It's so cool. Under- the UI influence, man. It's great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Okay. That brings us to Video Game 20 questions. Are going to play one? It's so unfair. Yeah, it is. Uh, well. Let's do it. I'm going to help so you. Make, make uh, sure it's really hard. It is, from 20, it is from 2019. <laughs> now, when it comes from, uh, who is this from? Luke, in an undisclosed location. Uh, we lost the twenty questions that you will never hear, <gasps> too. So, oh yeah, should we let should we uh, let the audience know what the game was, or just I can't not, remember what it was. Give me a hint. Uh, it was. <laughs> it had. There was a meta. It had to do with the release of God of War. It had to do with the release of God. of War. I can't believe I can't remember. This was two days ago. <laughs> um, it was, was it a game it, that I had never heard of? Though was that what it was? No, you you know you know the game. Oh yeah, that's well, was, no. That was the Tom Clancy was the week before. If, I, okay, I well, let's see. I'll give you hints. Uh, Nick, it's a, a God of War wannabe from the Oh, yeah, yeah I remember. I remember. This era. is a licensed game that's not really yeah. licensed. Yeah. Oh, Dante's Inferno. Yeah, it was Dante's it. Inferno. Yeah, we should have had Nick on. <laughs> uh, okay, this week's suggestion comes from Luke in an undisclosed location. Let the questioning begin. Is this based on a license? No. Is this a on a Nintendo platform? Bad question. That's a good question. No, it's not. Oh, okay. Is this a platform exclusive? Um, it was a yeah. It was a console exclusive. Is was it a PlayStation console exclusive? Yes. Um. Before the year 2000 or after the year 2000? You have to, it has to be yes or no. Oh, yeah, sorry. Um, is this after the year 2000? No. That's five. Oh, weird. Um, so basically early PlayStation life then. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hashtag early PlayStation life. 
maybe it's Final Fantasy VII that came to PC after being kind of an exclusive. It's and it's on ever, Nick. And it is it is on everything. Uh, is this an RPG? No. Mm. Makes so, me think that, it's something that weird. Kills like, my next question. Makes me think it's something weird like medieval. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Because now that's on Switch or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Was this uh, was this published by Sony? Um, hold, please. Uh, no. <laughs> oh man, interesting. Okay, that's pretty cool. Is this a two D game? No. Do you okay. play? Well, but hold on. <laughs> okay. 2D game. <sighs> okay, this just gets us, it always gets us into, into trouble. Please rephrase your question to me like. Does this game use polygons? Yes, it does. And then what was your next question? You play as a human? Yeah. Yes. Could it be a fighting game? I mean, the way he was, again, I always do not, this. You know, cause, you know what I mean? Because that's like a 3D but game, but on a 2D plane. Yeah. What, what Does this what, game have multiplayer? No. And that's 10. Yeah. Makes me think it could be something like Symphony of the Night, because that game is technically 2D, but uses a lot of polygons. Yeah, I would call that straight 2D, but who knows? It's going on in Damon's brain. Uh, uh, not an RPG. And it's that that's pretty obviously not published by Sony, right? You wouldn't have to look that up. Correct. Um, is this part of a series? Yes. Is it the first of its name? Yes. Is this a platformer? No. Is this have military aspects? Um Military. I'm I'm skimming <laughs> some information here. Uh, any? I'm looking for any sign. Oh, man, maybe I can't answer that one. I, I can't answer that one. Um, actually, mm. well, let's do this. Is this set in the present day? Yes. Well, of the of its time, right. it was set in the present day. What are we at right now? Uh, that's well, fourteen questions. Um, uh, we just don't know anything about what the game looks like or is. Makes it hard. Not a platformer, you know. Not an RPG. RPG. Leaves what action shooter? Could it be uh, a sports game? Is it a sports game? No, that's five, 15. It's not a Do we know if it's a Japanese game? Does that matter at this point? We need like a Hail is Mary it, where it's like, you know, it, something really specific about it. Is it a Japanese game? Yes. I wonder if it's like a really weird one, like Vib Ribbon. <laughs> That game's called. Yeah, that is, but that—that's a Sony published one. Oh, right? was this game on the PlayStation uh, Mini? No. Man, 
It sounds like a little obscure. I don't think I would get this one. I wasn't really a PlayStation fan at the time. Is this a, a bullet hell game? No. Do we have one question and a guess? Yes. All right. Oh, man. <laughs> um, What's the... What can we do? We, we hit all the genres, game? you know? That's kind of crazy. We, we did a lot of them, but we did fighting game, RPG. Um, Here, here's your hint. I said it was a, a console exclusive. And Sam mentioned games that also came to PC, but I never said anything about PC. Yeah, yeah. So it's maybe an arcade game. Um, was this an arcade game? Yes. Okay. And that brings us to your guess. All right. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> arcade well, game, PlayStation. Was cra- So we got the Sega ones. It's not going to be those. That's Crazy Taxi and stuff like that, right? Right. Was there like a bloody roll? Well, well, did well, you ever ask a fighting game thing? The, yeah, I did, right? I asked about okay. fighting games, right? So that, that eliminates like... There, are the Virtua games Sega also? So it's not going to be Virtua Racing. That, that is Sega, yeah. yeah. Um, Daytona. Race, I'm thinking of racing now. Wipeout, is that one? I don't think there was ever an arcade, though, of, San, of Wipeout. Yeah, I don't think so either. Yeah, I don't think we're going to get this. And we asked if it was based on a license, right? So it's not going to be like Phantom Menace yeah. racing, pod racing. And it was the first of its name. Uh, House of the Dead, maybe? Do you want to just do that one? No, but that's Sega think, also, right? Yeah, that is, that is Sega. It's got to be not. We got to pick one to guess that's not a Sega game. <laughs> that's what makes it really hard, though. I think. Lethal Enforcer. I, I think. What about something like Silence Scope? Because wasn't Silence Scope released on PlayStation? I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I have no idea. Um, I wish we knew if it was a light gun. Light gun game. Maybe, uh, how about DDR? I think that's a safe bet. Okay, is this Dance Dance Revolution? (laughs) It is not. And you guys got very, very close there right before that. It is uh, an on-rails light gun shooter called Time Crisis. Oh, Oh, shoot! All right. Because I think DDR was PlayStation 2, but it was was a noble effort. I kept thinking of Virtual Cop. I know, me too. I forgot about and, that. And I, I, that was the one that tipped my tongue, but I kept on dismissing that because that was too early, I thought. There it is. Wow. Uh, yeah, Time Crisis from Namco. Funny. Ar- hit arcades in 95, then came to PS1 in 97. Man, Ridge Racer's Namco also, right? So that could have worked. Mm-hmm. Crap. Okay. Remember yeah. that ne- next time, Nick. Namco made arcade <laughs> games all through the night. There we go. <laughs> Funny. That was a good one. Um, that was a good one. I like that. I would have never gotten yep. it, but it was a good Oh, you're, but you're aware of this game, though, right? Not really. Oh, yeah, of course. I would have killed for a time crisis, like, with the uh, light like gun is... in my home setup. I would have killed for it. <laughs> this is the first time I've ever seen what time crisis looks like, but I'm aware of the title of it. I know it's an arcade game. They're so fun. It's weird that it was a single-player game. Yeah. I'm used like, to seeing, we're used to seeing these as two players. plugging away at this, right? Yeah. They did that in Time Crisis too. Basically, this was just the yeah the primitive one, and nobody actually. I feel like everyone want likes Time Crisis too, and I feel like nobody really talks about the first one. Look how look at the frame rate. It looks great. Yeah, the game also, looks it, gorgeous. It's like polygons with sprites all mixed in. There, I think we are on the cusp of like 
super nostalgia for this style PlayStation game that oh, we're going to totally. see. And Nintendo 64. Like mm-hmm. Although there were probably three awesome. of them on PS1. Oh, wow, Time Crisis. look how it has like a cell shading. Yeah, that's like a Mega Man Legends look. That's awesome. Crazy. That's crazy. Cool. There was, there was, there was Time Crisis and Time Crisis 2, and then there was Time Crisis Project Titan. Of and course. They're yes, all on PS1. Could, who could forget? Well, that was a perfect ending to a perfect scroop. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Nick, I don't think there are any bullet hell shooters on PS1. No, there's like the there's like the the top down like Thunder Force or whatever. That there's like one of those games. It, it came on a PS1 demo disc. So you narrowed down your the our game scoop twenty questions to a one game possibility. No, that, you there's didn't a know couple. The title <laughs> there's a couple. I'm just saying, if there was like bullet hell, I was like, okay, it's got to be one of these Japanese like uh, top down shooter yeah. jet things that when you start on Earth and you go into space and it's a, well, it's a you know, Saturn yeah. got a lot of those. That's for sure. I played it religiously on my demo disc. So there was um, the name of it. There's uh, um, Einhander, but it's not Bullet Hell. Hold on, I I have it probably somewhere. Uh, yeah, no, not that. Bullet one. Hell is like Bullet Hell is just it's a very specific type. Oh of, no! Oh, I oh I I'm I'm very aware. I'm just I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I'm gonna message you. I yeah, I can't I can't probably find it right now at this moment. But I have some existence of it on my computer locally that I okay. will I will message you later okay. on. No, I, I, okay. I'm I'm with Nick on this. I'm sure there's something, but you know that was right on the cusp of bullet. Well, no, late '90s it could have had stuff, but you know Sega really took all those. Oh yeah. Well, nicely job. Thank you, Luke from 2019, for the suggestion. <laughs> Viewers, if you have your own suggestions for video game 20 questions, email them to me at the email address gamescoop@ign.com. That's all the scoops that we have for you this week. Thank you both, Sam and Nick, for helping me to uh, get an episode out the door, if not the original episode this mm -hmm. week. Uh, and thank you for all of your emails. Uh, this is, I knew there's a reason why I keep all these emails just lying around yeah. in my inbox. <laughs> yeah, just like any hoarder. You know there's a reason for it. And now, so with those out of the way, now there are only 3,277 emails left. Nice. My game scoop. Let's have more scoops, and then we can get through them. I got I to gotta play some Obelix. Yeah, yeah. Hey, shout, out to, shout out to all the Gauls out there, my Gallic pals. <laughs> uh, okay, thank you to Red for uh, uh, hopping on this and recording this episode for us on such short notice. My name is Damon. This is IGN Gamescoop. We're out. Bonsoir.